We're going to be returning to the book of Exodus this morning together in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 is where we're going to be picking up together. By way of announcement, as you turn there on your bulletin, there's an upcoming event on April 7th, which is going to be our Good Friday service. We're going to gather together on the evening of Friday at 7 p.m. for a corporate time of prayer. We'll have some meditations on the cross and the benefits of Christ dying for his people and to pray and pray, to pray and praise and thanks to him together. So we invite you to that fellowship we'll have together on Friday. Last time in Exodus, we left off with the song of Moses and the sons of Israel that they sang to Yahweh and certainly singing together as God's people is truly one of the highlights of any week. And it's encouraging to be reminded through song who our God is and what our God has done and is doing and to sing those truths to one another, to remember that he's our protector and our provider our guide, that he is our strength and our song and our salvation, and as we'll learn today, that he's also our healer. But you know that it's one thing to sing to the Lord and another to live for him day to day. It's amazing how quickly we can forget all of these rich truths that we sing about in the moment that a few difficulties come our way. I saw this even in myself as it snowed on this past Tuesday, and I found myself at home alone due to my family being stuck down the hill and the traffic that was there. But I wasn't all alone. I, I had one dog with me, but I'm supposed to have two dogs. The other one was down the street circling and barking at an elderly lady who was trying to carry her groceries into her snow-covered driveway. And as I went to retrieve my dog over the creek and through the woods to another neighbor's house, she goes. Eventually, I got to meet a new neighbor, got the dog back, and I go home to where I find out the repair on the roof has, repair, has failed, and the roof is leaking. The wall is soggy. Then the power goes out. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Suddenly, I didn't want that dog or that house. <laughs> I found myself uh, discontent with the situation that God had provided for me to be in. And in the moment, I couldn't see how anything good could come out of this. But an unexpected turn of events occurred that was used to turn my heart in all of this, where I found out that Dave is sick, and I have the opportunity to preach in his place. So I thought, well, what's next in the book of Exodus? Oh, yeah, it's about when those Israelites grumbled in the wilderness and the Lord tested them to show them what was in their hearts that he might humble them and do good to them in the end. I wonder if this has any personal application for me right now. <laughs> My discontentment in the moment was confronted by the glory of God's goodness and bringing all of these things about. 
the glory of God's word led me to repentance and reminded me of his grace towards sinners on earth. Exodus 15:22 to the end of chapter 16 is a text that reveals that God has grace for grumblers and his glory can heal our grumblings. And it's always been his plan from the very beginning to be gracious to be gracious in ordaining the trials which would expose our sin, to graciously providing the way of escape to be able to endure it, as we heard read from 1 Corinthians 10. For God also to graciously provide a tree which sweetens the bitter water and to graciously provide bread from heaven and rest from works. We see these things in Exodus 15.22, so I'm going to read this text. If you want to join me in Exodus 15.22 to the end of chapter 16. Then Moses had Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah, but... They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he set for them a statute and a judgment. And there he tested them. And he said, if you will earnestly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, Yahweh, am your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there beside the waters. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. Now it will be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that Yahweh has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh, for he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, This will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For Yahweh hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. And Moses said to Aaron, 
Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumblings. Now it happened as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they turned toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, so that you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it happened at evening that the quells came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. Then the layer of dew evaporated, and behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And the sons of Israel saw it and said to one another, What is it? And they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. And they measured it with an omer, and he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but the sun would grow hot and it would melt. Now it happened that on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. Then all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, and he said to them, this is what Yahweh has spoken, tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is in excess put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had commanded, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day the Sabbath there will be none. Now, it happened on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar. 
and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the sons of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you would provide from the reading and the preaching of your word the food that we need for our souls to see more clearly your kindness and goodness toward us, even in the trials which you use to test us, to teach us what our hearts are really like, and to graciously turn our hearts to trust in your goodness. We pray that you would have that same effect in us today, that you would change our grumblings into gratitude, because your word would not just be something that's heard on the outside, but that is believed and listened to from the inside. Amen. Beginning this section of Scripture where we see this tree that the Lord provided, I call this the Torah tree. You remember that Israel had just set out from the Red Sea, and before you're too hard on these people, I want you to notice that they made it three days in the wilderness without water before they grumbled. Who could do that even in the line before the fellowship mill today, before they grumbled? Could you make it even one day? The Red Sea should have made it clear to Israel that God created and owns the water. He can do whatever He wants with it, and He only intends to do good to us, even at Mara, which means bitter. Who's in charge of the water of the Red Sea, and who's in charge of the water at Mara? Who put it there? Well, the Israelites grumbled at Moses as if he had something to do with it. But was Moses the creator? Was Moses the controller of these things that were happening? You see, the people's problem was bitterness, and God's solution was sweetness. And he had always had it in his plan to make the bitter water sweet. They just needed to wait a few days to see how he was going to do that in his timing and to achieve his good purposes. God can only ever intend good and can only do good. And learning this truth alone should suppress our grumblings and encourage a patient waiting on the Lord to see what good thing does he have in mind for us in this difficult situation. What God had in mind was Moses, the mediator, crying out to Yahweh, their new master, and providing a tree of life where God gives his first instruction to his people. This was a tree which would result in life, and it was a tree which would test them, a tree of life and a tree of testing where Yahweh, the Torah instructor, would give a test to his people to ultimately teach them this lesson. I, Yahweh, am your healer. And it's here in Scripture that we begin to understand the nature of God's law, where in verse 25 it says, 
Yahweh showed him a tree. That verb showed comes from the verb Torah. Yahweh Torahed Moses a tree, showed him a tree, or instructed him toward a tree to teach him something. The nature of God's Torah law instruction is laid out here where he instructs Moses concerning a tree and points him to that tree to teach people something. So the nature of the law in its most basic form is that it instructs. It's a teacher. And the specific things that it instructs in is that man is a grumbling sinner who does not thank God, seek Him, or understand Him. It also instructs that man needs a mediator who cries out to Yahweh for him. And it teaches that Yahweh alone can heal man's sinful heart. We're going to think through how the law instructs in three points. I'll reiterate those. The first one is that God's law indicts the human heart. God's law indicts the human heart by examining it under the Word of God. And here's how it worked with this exam worked with Israel. In verse 26, they were told, listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. And what do we find out about Israel's listening skills as they were examined? Yeah, later on in chapter 16, verse 20, they read, we read, they did not listen. They were also commanded in God's law to do what is right in His eyes. But did they believe that God was right? Did they believe that He was good or did they think He was wrong and He was doing bad to them and they were thinking about things rightly? They were justified in their grumbling and it would be better if they had died by His hand in the land of Egypt. The law in indicting the human heart functions as an examination mirror where it says, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. It confronts our hearing and doing. James picks up on this in James chapter 1 where he says, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. So the law functions to point out sin and to instruct us about what our hearts are like. They're totally depraved, totally diseased by sin and our thinking, our affections, our actions, everything. And Israel's sinful response that we read about here is a reflection not only of their hearts, but every human heart, just as we heard from 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written down for, as an example to us and instructive to us that we wouldn't desire idolatry as they did. We're no different. We're no better, which the Holy Spirit testifies to in Romans chapter 3 where it says, what then? Are we better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, 
There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness." Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's where you see again echoed that idea that the law indicts the human heart. It gives knowledge of the sinfulness of it. The second thing that God's law does is that it involves a mediator. We see that with Moses mediating for the people of Israel. And it points out their sin problem, but it also points to a mediator to be the solution to the problem somehow, a mediator who cries out to Yahweh for the sake of sinners, and God providing a tree which makes the bitter into sweet, which instructs them in their need for purity. Now, notice that it wasn't the instruction that would change them. It wasn't the law instruction that would change them, but what changed the situation and what changed the water was the tree. It wasn't that an instruction manual was thrown into it, but a tree. Here we see that the, the law is merely a teacher and never a savior. It is simply an instructor and it can't transform anything. But rather what it does is it points to that which does. The instruction didn't give life. The provided tree did. The law points to the tree of life, which perhaps raises the question in your mind, well, is there any benefit in obeying God's law other than just being taught by it? Well, yes, but it's limited. And you read of the nature of the law's limitation in verse 26 where Yahweh says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. So you learn from God's law that it can help avoid diseases, but it can't heal. That's going to be distinct to Yahweh as Savior and healer. Put another way, the law can help avoid some pain in this life, but it can't bring you to salvation into the next. You can see how in Ephesians 6, there's an example of this as Paul teaches the law, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. So you learn the blessing of keeping this law is that you don't get a spanking. But it can't heal your heart. It can prolong living life in the land, but it can't give you eternal life. And the law can't bring you closer to God, and it can't heal your heart's diseases. Well, if the law can't do that, then who can? 
Well, what it points to, Yahweh being your healer. The law cannot do what Christ has done. I want you to turn over to Romans 8.3 to see that. In Romans 8.3, we see Paul teaching this idea that the, the law can't do what Christ has done. Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. This brings us to see a third point about the nature of the law, and that what it does is it points us to the means of salvation, which is Yahweh being the healer that you need, which brings the nature of the law full circle. One, it indicts the human heart. Two, it involves a mediator. And three, it instructs to the means of salvation, which is provided by God alone being your healer. Perhaps you think Moses being instructed toward a tree of life which resulted in water of life would fix this whole situation. A little bit of legislation would put all sorts of love into the hearts of the Israelites, which is a bad parenting strategy, by the way. But what you see that the law does in chapter 16 and verse 2 is that it stirs up sin. The whole congregation not only grumbles against Moses, but now they up their game and grumble against Moses and Aaron. The combination of statute and judgment and test didn't heal the sons of Israel, but it did diagnose their sickness. It came like a doctor asking basic diagnostic questions. Well, how are you doing at listening to the voice of Yahweh your God? How are you at doing what is right in His sight? How are you doing at giving ear to His commandments and keeping all His statutes? And those questions alone are enough to stop the mouth of any man and diagnose unbelief and a non-listening heart and shows that the unbelieving, non-listening heart situation is so bad and the patient is so far gone that they don't even recognize that they're so sick and in need of so radical a healing. In the mirror of Israel's grumblings, we also see something of ourselves and grumblings that we might have in our own congregation when things don't go how we'd like them to go. That can happen toward God's ordained leadership and saying, well, Lord, it's the leadership you gave me. That's the problem. Or this grumbling could be toward anybody in the congregation. But we know how we can take our grumblings and we can gussy them up. We can dress up the gremlin of grumbling and put a suit on them, a nice little tie, and reintroduce them to everybody as a prayer request. <laughs> or just some useful history that you might need to know about this person. Or just being concerned and saying, you know, I just don't understand what's happening with so-and-so and this sort of thing. You know, Moses and Aaron have a concerning past and, you know, what they're doing here could really affect a lot of people. And you convince yourself in your grumblings, you're not really being a busybody because you really need to talk these things through. 
But in doing that, are you really advancing the cause of Christ to exalt his goodness and to edify his saints and to evangelize the lost? But you know, when somebody confronts our grumblings, we have our escape tactics. One, we can say, well, I'm just concerned. That's why I'm bringing it up. But the reality is that it's not a righteous concern. It's more self-righteous. Or two, we have a way where we know we can just kind of make a joke and laugh it off and maybe the person won't keep you know, pushing and pointing out that sin that we're actually committing in the moment. But what happens when the suit and the tie comes off the gremlin? Well, the gremlin of grumbling is seen for what it is and we find out there were some cousins of his and hidden in his pockets, suspicion and gossip and slander, busybody and idleness. And what's the fruit of all of our grumbling? A lot of wasted time, greater disunity in the congregation. When you think about these things, we see the cost of grumbling is too high to indulge and that it's never worth it. So just kill it dead and burn those silly little clothes that you made for it. Grumbling has never bettered your circumstances. It's never helped you in any way or pleased your heavenly Father. And we really have no reason to grumble ever, do we? Grumblings never heal what only God's glory can. Well, with the sons of Israel, you see that their situation was so desperate, they weren't even looking for a healer. It's as if they were blind to the tree and the water which gave them life and deaf to the one who said, I, Yahweh, am your healer. They had been given life, but they said, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to put the whole assembly to death with hunger. But the reality of the situation was they were not brought out for death, but from death into life. And they weren't brought out by Moses, but by Yahweh. They were totally confused and they were following their gut rather than God as their guide. What you see is this people needed a God who is gracious, a God who is a patient provider, a God who can heal their hearts. They need a God who can say to them, I, Yahweh, am your healer and has the strength to do this all by himself because obviously they're not going to attribute anything to the process of their salvation. They're not even interested in it. They need a salvation that would give them that interest, a salvation that would give them a belief and empower them with a listening heart so that their food would become doing the will of the one who delivered them. God's word in their heart is the provision that they really need. God teaches this in sending them bread from heaven to test them to test them to see whether or not they would walk in his law. And what are the results of the test? Did they walk in God's Torah instruction? And why did he give him this test? I have you turn to Deuteronomy 8 with me to see how 
Moses, by the Holy Spirit, clarifies the, the purpose of this test. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Deuteronomy 8, 2. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. If you skip down to verse 16, Moses goes on, In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. You see, this test wasn't an experiment for Yahweh to learn what was going on with these people. It was so that they could know what was in their heart and that man does not live by bread alone. They were to live on the provision of God's law word. And this test was a teaching tool. And the test was meant to humble them into seeing that God does good for you through hard things, and it exposed their need for somebody to take the test in their place and to show them what it does look like to live by the Word of God. So who is that mediator who can take and pass the test and bring about the salvation that the law points to? Who is the righteousness that sinful man needs? Who can pass such a test in our place? Where well, we see that in another instance, which involves the wilderness and the number 40 and testing and these same Bible verses that we just read. In Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Jesus does what we could never do for ourselves. He victoriously obeys God's word in our place. His righteous victory is our salvation, but it's also an example in how to live out righteousness and to live by what he would later preach in Matthew 6. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Back in Exodus chapter 16, you may recall the echoing of creation language, the sixth day and evening and morning. And it's on the sixth day that God provides bread for man who he made on the sixth day. And what would that bread do? It would bring him into the seventh day, 
where God will have already done all of the work that was needed for man to enjoy God's rest on the seventh day. And what would man see on that day when he would enter into the seventh day? Well, the text says, in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh, that he is both your creator and healer. But in their blindness, they thought this was all Moses and Aaron doing this stuff. They missed the glory of Yahweh, which shows us it would take a supernatural healing to resolve this kind of sin-sick grumbling that they had in their hearts, which it's pointed out to them multiple times that their grumblings weren't against Moses and Aaron. They were against Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? Well, He is the healer that they need. He is the creator and controller of all things in His creation, even this situation in the wilderness. He is the God who hears their cries and hears their grumblings and then acts on their behalf for their good. He is the provider that they're sinning against. He is the grace that they're grumbling against. What kind of salvation does a people like this need? Well, they need some way to be able to enter into God's rest, but part of their problem is they don't want to. They need rest from their grumbling. They need rest and gratitude. They need their totally depraved thinker, feeler, and doer to be totally converted, to be healed so that they would want to do good rather than evil. To not be a people who would turn opportunities for gratefulness into opportunities for grumbling or to call God's good provision evil and the evil of Egypt's provision good. They need a salvation which would make them an entirely new creation and bring them into God's rest. Again, we recognize that Their backwardsness to God's rest is something that we struggle with ourselves when things aren't quite as we would like them to be. They're not good in our eyes. But we have to remember, who is it that put us in this situation? The situation with the snow and your family and the dog and the neighbors and the leak and the power outage. And I'm sure you had your own things that you could add to that list of happenings of this week. And these sort of things happen to all of us. But we have to remember when our heart is tempted toward grumbling to think about who we're really grumbling against. Is he wise? Is he good? Is he working all things together for your good? Does he know what is best for you? Does he plan to do good to you in the end? It's in times like these that we need to reason with ourselves from the scriptures. We need to learn to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. Don't listen to those grumblings. Tell them what to do and tell them by the word of God. Now, why is it that God chose to use water and bread and meat and all of these things? 
in this situation. I was to teach them something. As the text says in 1612, these are all so that you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Why does God give water of life? Why does He give bread from heaven? Why does He give meat to eat for grumblers? Well, because of what He was trying to teach them. I, Yahweh, am your healer. And the things that I'm going to use to heal you are water, bread, and meat. As we see in verse 12, chapter 16, verse 12, he says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, so that you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. What you can see, this was a reminder of the meaning of Passover. He was teaching him the meaning of Passover is what's going to heal you. And as the people received this bread from heaven, they didn't understand it. They said, manna, which is, what is it? That's what the word manna means. And Moses answered and told them, it is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. So you think about how this was a corrective to the molten calf worshipers who might think, well, it's the gods of Egypt that gave us this. Or maybe this is a shipment from Pharaoh to uh, invite us back to that place that was so much better than this time we're in right now. Or, you know what, this is all Moses and Aaron. But Moses, by Yahweh's word, was teaching them, this is Yahweh who's providing you this. And he's graciously provided this for you so that you would have no lack. No reason to be ungrateful, no reason to ask for anything more, but rather every reason to be grateful and every reason to be content. And so when he instructs them in their gathering, he instructs them to, to understand you don't need to gather with greed. You don't have to gather and think, I need to store up extra for myself, so just in case there isn't some on the Sabbath, I'll have some extra for myself. And he says, rather, if you're able to gather more, gather it so that you can share it with others. Gather it not out of selfishness and greed, but for the sake that you could share with others and trusting that God has provided enough for everybody in the congregation, which Paul picks up on this principle in 2 Corinthians 8 when he talks about the Corinthians sharing a financial gift with another church when he says, for this is not for the relief of others and for your affliction, but by a way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So they were together without greed, but also without fear, without the fear of thinking, well, maybe we won't have enough, or the fear of trusting that God might not provide and the fear of thinking that you need to control things. But rather this time was to teach them that they could trust God and they couldn't control things, but he was controlling everything for their good and would provide, them, provide for them everything that they would need to be able to rest in him which is what the Sabbath observance taught. 
in Exodus 16, when we get to verses 22 to 16, this is the first time the Sabbath observance and command is given in, stri- in Scripture. It's an observance that's focused on God's work in creation, not their work, to teach them that they're to rely on Him for His provision, and they need to have a reminder of that. This is a rest that was unto Yahweh, and no work is needed on this day because God's already done all of the work that's necessary for it. And so the Sabbath comes to them to meet their greatest need, and as a gift. When the Sabbath is given to them in 1628, we read, Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? How long are you going to refuse to enter into my rest when it's the best thing for you? This is similar to when a parent says to their child, you need to go to bed and get some rest. The child says, but I don't want to. I'm not tired. To which the parent could reply, how long will you refuse to do what I told you to do? You need rest. And this is the time which the Lord has given it to you in order to do good for you in the end. Israel failed to see their need and to trust that Yahweh is good. And even so, God still graciously gives them the gift of the Sabbath anyways. We read earlier of the gift, which is emphasized with the words given and gives. It says, see, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place. On the seventh day, Yahweh gives the Sabbath as a gift for man, not as something for man to give to God as if he needed anything. In contrast to Pharaoh, you remember it was Pharaoh who would not let these people rest, and he needed them to constantly be working for him and doing things for him. But God is not like Pharaoh. Rather, God gives rest, and he has No need. But in considerations to man, we need God's rest. But we don't deserve it. And in our sinfulness, we can't even see our need for it or even desire it or work to earn it as a reward. The only way we can enter into God's rest is by God's work alone. The Sabbath is a reminder not only that we can only enter into God's rest by God's work, but it's a demonstration of God's faithful love toward His people. Some of the manna that was provided for these people was to be placed in a jar and a generational reminder of God's provision to remind and to teach future generations of the bread that God graciously provided in the wilderness and how he had brought them up out of Egypt. This is a reminder that God provides what is needed for his redeemed people so that they can rather be focused on the business of seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first. 
That was a testimony of God's faithful love for an unfaithful people. That was a testimony of grace for grumblers. It was an echo of what God did in Moses in his 40 years in Midian when the Lord told him, come and follow me and I will make you a shepherd of men. If God can provide for Moses those 40 years and Israel for 40 years, we can trust his good provision today. His love is still a faithful love and it's unchanging. We need to remember those things on a day that has enough troubles of its own. We see in Scripture how God turned grumbling Moses into a grateful Moses by the sight of his glory. And we see that he can do the same for Israel. He can do the same for anybody. And so we look to him to be healed of our sinful heart grumblings. But as you know, healing takes time. Sometimes you got to go through a lot of tests and examinations to refine the healing process. And the best medicine is a combination of grace and truth, which is the character of God. It's loving kindness and truth, grace and truth. It's a family recipe that's been placed in a jar and handed down throughout the ages. You know, canning promises like that preserves believing hearts and God's grace, which is not just a past grace, it's a present grace and it will be a certain future grace as well. God's glory being beheld in his word and in his people and in prayer is what heals our sinful grumblings. We remember these realities as we will approach the Lord's table together and enjoy these same preserved salvation promises. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the bread provision for our salvation, that your body would be broken in our place, that divine justice would be satisfied not in us being sent to hell forever, but by being delivered forever to enjoy knowing you and living with you forever. It was by your blood spilt in our place as our substitute sacrifice that you redeemed us to know you, to enjoy you, and to live for you. We thank you for the new covenant in which you take this instruction from being something that is not just outside of us, but inside of us. And you give us grace not only to save us, but grace also is the power to live for you. Thank you for these great benefits which you achieved on the cross. It is a wondrous thing to survey and to remember and to pour contempt on all of the pride that we have in ourselves of doubting your goodness, doubting your good provision and doubting your good protection and doubting your good guidance. We pray that you would Reverse all of these things to help us to trust in your goodness in every situation so that you would be honored in our lives. Amen.